Okay, so today we are continuing our study in the book of Romans. And it seems that my kids might have changed my password. <laughs> so. Okay, there we go. As we are discussing um, how we have uh, kids, Sunday school, adult Sunday school, and then service, fellowship meal, members meeting, prayer, etc. I'm reminded of the commitments that each of us make individually and as families, right? So I was reflecting on some time ago how um, this was many years ago, probably 15 years ago, in which I was convinced to join a, I guess they call it an intramural sports team. It was a, a softball team. And the idea was, look, it's a very low level commitment. You just come here once a week and then you play within this league and it's just for fun people just you know have a good time and do it so um a few of us showed up to play in this intramural sports and as we showed up i started seeing the other teams putting on their uniforms like having professional gear and i was like wait i thought this was just for fun what happened and they come to find out they actually have coaches they meet three times a week to practice. I'm like, for once, we don't have a chance of being any good. And secondly, you could see the importance and the priority that people and families put to activities in their life. Now, is being in the sports team and exercising good? That's great. That's really good. But how are our commitments to the things that are important to us in our lives? Specifically, how are is how is our commitment to the Lord in our commitment to a local church? Let's keep that in mind. So today we're going to continue the book of Romans, chapter 2. Not quite till the end, but we're getting to the end of chapter 2. We're going to read Romans 2, starting in verse 17 through verse 24. If you are able to stand for the reading of God's word, please do so. The infallible and authoritative word of God reads as follows. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you today empty-handed, with nothing to offer you, Lord, except a heart that needs to be filled with your wisdom that comes from your word, hoping that you give us mercy. And we know that you are a God 
who gives those things to those who ask. We pray that your Holy Spirit humbles us and grants us understanding regarding the issue of having trust in false security, whether it's religion, morality, or anything else that is not in Christ. And in Jesus' name, it is that we ask for these things. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So the sermon today is a continuation of last week. The title, God is Impartial. The second part. This letter to the Romans, what is Paul doing? He is teaching, he is exhorting. The method he's using is called a literary style diatribe. He's expecting people to have questions. So he formulates those questions and he answers them, either rhetorically or actually with, with an answer. And we, we're going to see now that as Paul is developing this theme of God shows no partiality, either to the people of Israel or to those that are outside of the people of Israel, we come to a question which follows the one that was before. The one before was, what happens to all those people who have never heard of the law, who don't have the law? Or in our current context, what happens to those people that have never heard the gospel? Paul answered that, and as he had built up the explanation that there's no excuse for any sinner when it comes to God's judgment, because they have suppressed the truth of God, because they have been given revelation of what is right and wrong written in their heart. And yet, although sometimes they may do what is right, they don't always do what is right, and therefore, they are condemned. Paul answered that question. What happens to those who have not heard? Today's question is the one that says, what about those that have heard, that do have the law, and do know the law. For perhaps in our modern context, what about all those who have heard the gospel? We started touching on that subject last time, right? It told you it would overlap. And this is the overlap. What about us? That's the question today for us. What about those that we have evangelized to? What about those that have heard the gospel? Just as Paul stripped away the false security of those that may be ignorant of the law, Paul will now finish ripping away any false security from those that have heard the law. And he is telling them that they are not going to be safe based on knowledge alone. As we look at the book of Romans and how it's structured, Ever since we started preaching from chapter 1, it just seems that it's just bad news after bad news and exhortation to self-analysis over and over. For one, if this was Paul's intent for the church at Rome, it's good enough for us, right? That we need to be constantly reflecting on that self-analysis. But also... There's something that Paul is building to. From chapter 1 to about half of chapter 3, Paul is essentially stripping away all the false security that people can have, both Jewish and Gentile. 
so that when he presents the fact that we cannot be right with God based on anything we have, based on any self-justification, then we can begin to understand the need for a Savior and to fall on His mercy only with nothing to offer. That is what Paul is building up to. So let us keep that in mind as we go through the passage today and even as we go into chapter 3. Paul is ripping away all sorts of false securities with the premise that God will show no favoritism. This is a theme. As we saw in verse 11, that God is impartial. He will not favor anyone based on anything that they have done. So the way that Paul is going to address his topic in this passage of what happens to those that have hurt and ripping away that false security, we're going to see three things. First, we're going to see the basis for the false security that they have. In other words, we're talking about spiritual false security. What is it based on? Why do they think that they're okay? Secondly, we're going to see the reasons for the false security, right? They've rationalized in their mind, this Jewish audience of Paul, why they would be okay. What are the reasons? And thirdly, we're going to see the consequence of that false security. In that, Paul has a warning for his audience. Right? So let's get right to it. Basis for false security. The first four verses, 17 through 20. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and the truth. Right, Paul has run on sentences. That's why it sounds kind of weird to stop there, but we'll stop there and see what he has said thus far. So everyone, in some sense or another, we all have a sense of security, and we seek a sense of security. By and large, spiritual security, marital security, financial security, well-being, right? I, I want my health to be okay. Job security, I need a job to be able to provide for myself. Now those are not bad, those are good. We should seek for those things. Now, spiritual security, as I develop this sermon here, let us understand what I mean by that. Spiritual security is to have a sense of assurance that if and when God's judgment comes, I will be okay. Spiritual security, there's judgment coming, and based on something I think or feel or think that I've done, I'm going to be okay. Spiritual security. And it seems that in our human nature, we automatically aim to justify ourselves. Not to look at God for justification, but to say, well, I mean, I'm I'm basically okay. I'm a good person. I'm, I'm not a murderer. I don't steal. I don't wish evil on anyone. So I think I'm okay. Right? This is a standard answer when you confront someone with the message of the gospel, especially in street evangelism. The spiritual sense of security in this aspect is, by and large, false security. Jesus said that 
the road that leads to destruction is wide. And that road that leads to eternal life is narrow. And only few go by it. So I have an example of what false security may look like in something very tangible. Not spiritual security, but financial security. There are these uh, scammers who will befriend a person, will develop a sort of relationship with a family or a group of people, and then they will ask for a small loan. You know, let me borrow a hundred bucks. You know, I, I'll pay you back by Friday. And to your surprise, they actually pay it back even earlier than they told you they would. And perhaps, hey, you know what? Thank you so much. Here's an extra 20 bucks. That really helped me. Thank you. That seems pretty honorable, right? So what's the catch? This person will later ask you for $500. I'm really desperate need. I'll get back to you again, like I did last time, by next week or earlier. Yeah, okay. Here we go. Now this is building to something. The scammer is building this trust, this security with the lender. And what typically happens is that soon they will have this elaborate, incredible story of how they need a larger amount of money. With the intent that after they're issued that money, they're nowhere to be seen. Now, this has been proven to work. It almost happened to me. About over a decade ago, there was this character who showed up in the scene amongst a group of friends that I had at the time. <coughs> and he <coughs> asked me for a small loan. Him and his family seemed like they would need it. I, I did. And then after some time, uh, he came to me with a story that he's starting up a business and the products are stuck in customs and he needs money. So now he asked for $1,000. But by that time, I already started to suspect something. So I declined. I said no. And then this person kind of went out of sight for a long time. About a year later, I was wondering what ever happened to that person. So no longer could get a hold of him. Um, and I just did a random search online. And what do you know? He had moved to the outskirts of L.A., in which he supposedly had built a, uh, a fake business, and he befriended more families and more people in like manner like he had done to me and some friends, and he scammed them. They filed an FBI report on him. Cumulatively, he took over a million dollars from people. You see? False security, where the... People lending money think this guy is good for it. Only to come out when you actually lend them a large sum of money that they have built you up into false security. Now that's evil enough. But what about when the false security is spiritual? We were talking today in Sunday school how we can not fool ourselves into having false security. He could be sold to us from somebody in the pulpit. But even worse, we can sell it to ourselves. False security. 
The notion that I'm right with God because I go to church, because I know the Bible, because I'm a deacon, I'm the wife of a deacon, etc., etc., right? I kind of went through that list last time. It's almost as if we are setting up ourselves with a huge moral debt, banking on the fact that Jesus will pay my bill when it's due. But our heart is not with Jesus. Jesus does not have our back. And we're, we're reminded of the warning in Matthew chapter 7, when Jesus says that many will come to me in that day. He doesn't say, well, some will. No, many. And the context there, for our application, it's churchgoers. It's that many will come to me in that day, and he will tell them, depart from me, I never knew you. That's pretty heavy. There's some warnings about false security in Scripture. Other examples. Let's look at, look at three of them. Amos 9.10. It says, All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword, who say, Disasters shall not overtake or meet us. Right? When God's judgment comes to his people, they are found having false security, thinking that no one will ever take them. Ecclesiastes 8.11 says, Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. This reminds me of a pastor once said, If the wages of death were paid immediately, we would probably think twice about sinning. Psalm 10 verse 4. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. What we have here is basically practical atheism. An intellectual acknowledgement of God. Even some religious experience and devotion to God. But when it comes to living, none of the holy things that we know are evident in our lives. Much knowledge, but no transformation of our daily lifestyle. Now, the Jewish folks that are in the audience to the letter of the Romans, what might, might they be basing their presumed good status with God on? What is the basis of their potential false security in salvation? Let's return to the passage there, Romans 2, 17 through 20. We see there first that... <coughs> They're banking on the fact they're going to be right with God because of their ethnicity, because they're Jewish. They're the Israelites. They're the chosen people of God. And to that, God says, nope, no partiality. And then we see there that they are relying on the law and boast in God. God says, I will show no partiality. Then we see that they think they have security because... They know God's will. They know what is excellent. And God says, still, there's no partiality. And then there's this theme of thinking too highly of themselves. So let's comment on some of these aspects of false security. Right? Being Jewish, that's an obvious one. But let's focus, for instance, on the third one. Knowing God's will and what is excellent. 
They know God's will, but this is just an empty conviction. We are the chosen people of God. But other than boasting on that, there's really no, no substance. In our context would be, God chooses people for salvation. He has chosen me. Man, that's good. But then look at my life, and there's nothing to show for that, right? An empty boast. So knowing God's will, knowing, God's will, knowing what is excellent. So what is God's will? Meaning, what is it that is excellent? This is revealed in Scripture in multiple contexts. What is God's will? Let's take a quick look at some of these things. First, we see in 1 Thessalonians 5.18 that God's will is to always be thankful. In 1 Peter 2.15, we see that God's will is to do good deeds to silence the foolish unbelievers. And this is actually related to the last verse we're going to talk about today. It's basically the counter of it. And then again, in 1 Thessalonians 4.3, God's will is to abstain from sexual immorality. And then in another context, in John 6.40, God's will is to save all those who look to, who trust in Christ, in the Son. So then in one sense, if we have a, thumb, a thumbnail portrait of what the will of God is, His will is to save sinners. That's great news, right? And in another sense, God's will, when it comes to doing the revealed will of God, the message here is, have a life that reflects obedience to God. A life reflecting obedience. God's will to save sinners, and it is God's will for those that he has saved for them to show obedience in their life. Now, is that possible? The answer is no. Right, so how are we going to do it? Here's the key. Unless God grants us the obedience to do his will, it will be a futile effort. Let us look at Psalm 143, verse 10. It says, Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. So how, to obtain, how do we obtain obedience? In a sense, it's the same way we obtain faith. It needs to be granted to us. Philippians 1.29 says that, God grants us to believe, to repent. Not only that, but also to suffer for his sake. We always forget that second part, right? When we fall in God's mercy and admit, Lord, unless you change my heart, unless you free me from the bondage of sin, I'm lost. I have nothing. I cannot obey you. There's this the sense that we need to fall completely upon the will of God in His mercy for Him to save us, for Him to act. Yet, in this paradox, we are not excused for disobeying. We are empowered as believers to be able to obey. So the culprit is not, well, God hasn't granted me obedience, you know. He, he really needs to get on it. Right? How ridiculous is that? No. It is more like, well, you know, I am lazy. I have no discipline, neither in my day-to-day -day life to be organized and diligent to do my job well. 
to, you know, to, to be on it. In Spanish, we call it ponerme las pilas, to really, like, get on with it, do it. I don't have the diligence or motivation to do that, let alone the motivation and diligence in my spiritual life. That is the reason. You are responsible, not God. Let us never use an excuse that God hasn't granted me obedience. No. He has. You're disobeying. So other ways for the basis of false security, then in verse 19 and 20 there in our passage, is this, this notion of thinking too highly of oneself. Right? There's nothing new under the sun. This is as old as the scriptures. And it says there that the Jewish folks, they were sure that they were a guide to the blind. You see that word? They were sure. Now maybe we are, you know, we, we can t- No, we know that we are a guide to the blind. Jesus himself warned about this very thing. The blind leading the blind. Luke 6.39. In the latter part of that verse, Jesus said, Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? The blind leading the blind. And then they are sure that they are a light to those in darkness. That they are an instructor to the foolish. And that they are teacher of children. Now here the teacher of children, that, that phrase, that word children, this is in reference to those who are new to the faith. Paul elsewhere talks about the new believers, those that are young in the faith, that need to be nourished with spiritual milk. So the Jewish people had in mind that they were the ones who were going to teach those, those young believers, those that lack understanding. And then here it says that they have in the law, which is the embodiment and knowledge of the truth. This embodiment and knowledge of the truth were indeed in the law that was revealed to them. But here Paul is using the fact as a rebuke. They were entrusted with the oracles of God, with the word of God. right? So they, they're not in the position where the pagans were. Where, what about if they don't have it? No, they do have it. And instead of this being a blessing for them, it's actually a rebuke and a curse and brings in condemnation because they have no true regard for it. It's only lip service. They had turned it actually into boasting that they were the chosen people, boasting that they have the law, rather than turning to humble obedience. Now, how does this apply? Is it not the case that many times as believers, instead of having an attitude of humility and kindness towards others, we take an attitude of superiority. Like, oh, I know that church. Oh, they're, they're out to lunch in their theology. Or I know this person that, you know, their, their theology is not as sophisticated as, as mine. Oh, that's an attitude of arrogance. Like, I've been given more illumination. Now, it doesn't mean that the theology you're critical of is correct. Technically, you could be right in criticizing bad theology. But isn't it true, especially in Calvinistic circles, that we may have an attitude of superiority? Now, if we really understand the basis of Reformed theology, instead of bringing us an attitude of arrogance, it should bring us humility. 
because God granted us knowledge, repentance, salvation, we should not think of ourselves higher than anybody else, but rather as those who were extended that unmerited favor that we were giving God's grace. And that's the only reason why we have knowledge and salvation. Now here the embodiment of knowledge and truth reminds us of the scripture that says something peculiar about the church. 1 Timothy 3.15 in the CSB version here for some of my brothers here. Shout out CSB. It says, but if I should be delayed, I have written so that you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in the household of God. Which is the church of the living God. The pillar and foundation of the truth. See, there's a direct relationship between the law being revealed to God's people. And then how that law is lived out and executed and taught. And preached and practiced. And keep people accountable. Where is that carried out? Individually in our homes? Yes, absolutely. But corporately in the church, the local church, there's no way around it. So then we've thus far seen the basis of false security. Their position, their knowledge, they're basing it on that right now. Let's look at the reason why. Why is it that they have false security? Romans 2, verses 21 and 22. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? So here we see in display the, the beautiful literary style that Paul is using. Rhetorical questions. Not that he's seeking an immediate answer, but he knows that those questions condemn and convict his hearers. And in doing so, Paul is, again, stripping away the false security from those who are trusting in it. And here the reason for false security is either self-deceit. They don't know that they're doing the very things they are preaching against, right? You're honestly, you're, I would say you're a sincere hypocrite. Like, oh, I don't know I was being a hypocrite. Sincerely, right? Or they know they're doing exactly what they teach against. That's shameless hypocrisy. Nonetheless, in both cases, hypocrisy. Teaching one thing, but doing the exact opposite. So then, the reasons for false security in these rhetorical questions, while they are teaching, they themselves don't practice what they preach. That's specifically the most direct application to me, right? Do I practice what I preach? But then, there's like a Sub-bullet for that. What about those that I preach to? Do they practice what they preach or what they hear? And then, teaching against stealing, and yet they steal. Teaching against adultery, yet they are adulterers themselves. This is the accusation either. Adulterers as at heart, as Jesus warned, that if we lust after someone in our hearts, we are guilty of adultery. Either in that sense, or full-blown adulteress in actual deed. Which, 
adultery at heart, only a matter of time when that goes unchecked. Right? It's, it's a computer screen that you shouldn't go on and you click on. Just a matter of time before that ends up in the actual deed physically. <coughs> Teach against it, but yet do it. And then, <coughs> teach against idolatry. Yet, Paul says, don't you rob temples? Now, this is an odd one, right? Because the way he's structuring, you would think, why didn't he say, you teach against idolatry, and yet you are an idolater? But he doesn't say that. He says, you rob temples. So let us take a look at why Paul says that. The context here is that the children of Israel were told as they were going into the promised land in Deuteronomy chapter 7 to destroy all the pagan gods. Get rid of them. Destroy them. Not to be seen ever again. Because otherwise they would be tempted to follow idolatry from the pagan gods of those pagan temples. <clears throat> Let us take a quick look. At Deuteronomy chapter 7, <coughs> verses 5, <coughs> and then verses 26, 25 and 26. It reads as follows. But thus shall you deal with them, meaning the pagans. You shall break down their altars, and dash in pieces their pillars, and chop down their asherim, and burn their carved images with fire. The carved images of their gods you shall burn with fire. You shall not covet the silver or the gold that is on them or take it for, your, for yourselves, lest you be ensnared by it, for it is an abomination to the Lord your God. And you shall not bring an abominable, abominable thing into your house and become devoted, <coughs> devoted to destruction like it. You shall utterly detest and abhor it, for it is devoted to destruction." Now you see the connection there, the, the language that is being used, that they should abhor idols, because those are devoted to and bring destruction. That's what idolatry does. So what's happening here? Paul asked them this rhetorical question, you say you hate idolatry, but do you rob temples? You abhor idols. The word, therefore, abhor, it's to be physically disgusted due to an overwhelming, overwhelmingly foul odor that you want to throw up. So the Jews then, they didn't blatantly take idols from the pagans, set them up in their house, and went to town worshiping those idols. They didn't do that. It was a little bit more sophisticated than that. For one, we know that some of the Jewish people took the idols from the pagan temples and instead of destroying them, they sold them to other pagans so that they could then do their thing. They're like, oh, I'm not doing it. You know, I'm just being the, I just, I'm just a capitalist. I'm just selling it to them. Right? Or, <coughs> Jewish people would take those idols which are made of precious metals, silver, gold, melt that down and make those, mold those into things that 
are not traditional idols, but yet make it into things that their hearts passionately desire. Coins, money, jewelry. I'm not bowing down before curved images. I'm not an idolatry here. But you're basically using the content of what the pagans use to make my own sophisticated idols. My friends, this is a warning for us. We can look to the non-Christians and easily criticize them for their idols. That's easy to do. Only to turn that standard on ourselves and realize we have very similar, very similar idols with the only difference that we first melt them down, that way they're not easily recognizable. Figuratively speaking. In other words, we can say, I don't bow down to statues and make sacrifices like, pagan, like the pagans do. But, what do I bow down to? Figuratively speaking. Meaning, what or who do I serve? The scripture says that whatever overcomes a person that he is enslaved to. What is most dear to you? What are you passionate about? What do you daydream about? What do you allocate most of your thoughts, most of your time, most of your resources, most of your talents? So we think that and have an answer in our heads. That is what has overcome us. And every time that the answer is not Christ or a devotion to move towards Christ, our idolatry is revealed. So then here's Paul's indictment. Here is Paul's indictment. Guilty verdict, verdict to the Jewish people. Saying, you know the word of God, and yet are guilty for not living by what you know and by what you preach. And that spiritual privilege they think they have is stripped away. The false security they think they have is taken out. And God will be impartial in his judgment on that. So now we've seen the reasons for the false security of the Jewish audience of Paul. Now let us turn to the consequence of this false security. Romans 2, 23 and 24. You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. So the consequence of false security, one, you're going to be found guilty at the judgment, right? That's future. But there is a present consequence here and now. That is the dishonoring of God. That is, when God is dishonored by sinning against him, especially when the sin is not in ignorance, right? I am sinning something that I know. It's not ignorance. Like I am dishonoring my wife, my kids, the church, knowingly, I know I shouldn't do it. We are rejecting God's commandments, rejecting God's authority, rejecting God's wisdom. We are trading the eternal for a temporary satisfaction of following our own ways. Knowing in our minds that the end of that will be death, but we don't realize it at the time. So the manner in which Paul emphasizes that God is dishonored is... that they give a horrible witness. 
So then, my friends, do you think you're guiltless? You're guiltless before God when you sin, not only for your sin, but for the bad witness that you give. God's name is blasphemed among your family, among your friends, especially if they're non-believers. You are putting God's name to be blasphemed when you sin. And those around you observe that. That's what Paul says. That God's name is blasphemed because of you. Elsewhere, we see the counter to that. To that disobedience. That is, the commendation to obey God so that the Gentiles will honor God. The Lord Jesus in Matthew 5, verse 16, he says, In the same way, let your, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and... Glorify your Father in heaven. See, that's the, that's the counteraction of, of what we're being warned in Romans 2. Now, years ago, as I was trying to understand in a little bit more depth the commandments of God, <clears throat> I, came, I came across a very, very interesting commentary by a Jewish teacher, Dennis Prager. And he commented on each of the Ten Commandments, but specifically the one that caught my attention is the Third Commandment. As read on Exodus 20, verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltyless who takes his name in vain. I have a quote uh, that I've adjusted to get to the gist of what um, Mr. Prager is his take on this. I think I have it here in the notes. It says, the worst sin, it says, uh, Dennis Prager, the worst sin is committing evil in God's name. This is only one of the Ten Commandments, the only of the Ten Commandments that God will not forgive if a person violates the commandment. Most people understandably think that God, think that the commandment forbids saying God's name for no good reason. So something like, God, I had a rough day at work today, violates the third commandment. Now, when a non-religious person commits evil, it doesn't bring God and religion into disrepute. But when a religious person commits evil, especially in God's name, they are not committing, they're not only committing evil, they are doing terrible damage to the name of God. Unquote. I really think Prager is onto something here. He later argues that will God forgive murderers, adulterers, idolaters? But if somebody said, you know, OMG, or somebody said, oh, God, this is, well, you're done, never to be forgiven. I mean, honestly, we were all be doomed, all of us, if that were the case indeed. Now, should that mean that we are free to use God's name irreverently? Never. No, and we should avoid it and teach our children to do so, to also avoid it. <clears throat> but a more accurate rendering per this, per this commentary is to not misuse God's name. Hence, it means committing evil in God's name as he worded it. In this interesting proposition then, it's interesting to consider what the New Testament Jesus said 
about the sin that will not be forgiven, the unpardonable sin. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. What was that, right? When we read the account of Jesus with his opponents, the Pharisees, when he healed a man that had a demon. They committed blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And what was that? They were attributing to Satan the work of God. They said that Jesus healed that man by the power of Beelzebub, the prince of demons. And Jesus warned them, you've crossed the line. And that sin will not be forgiven. <coughs> so why go through the trouble of, of this explanation? Well, this applies to us, my friends. This applies to our text. When we sin, our disobedience is seen by those outside the church. And even by those inside. Those that may have weaker, weaker faith. By our children. By our relatives. And when they see us sinning, we are putting God's name up for blasphemy. Ah, look at them again. <laughs> Those little stupid Christians. Oh, that's the God they serve? Yeah, well, that's, that's no God at all. And we are guilty of instigating God's name being dishonored because of our sin. Hopefully, as we think about this, it could bring into perspective the fact that when we are confronted with our sin, God will not, God will not show us favoritism because of something that we have done in church or attended or no theology. He won't. And as we think of the consequences of giving a bad witness we are no different than the Jewish people who had the law who knew the scriptures we are in the camp of those who are in danger of more severe punishment because we have the knowledge and as we disobey and dishonor God what are we doing? We are blaspheming the name of God. We are, we are misusing God's name. May it never be that we think to ourselves, you know what? Maybe I just shouldn't say I'm a Christian. Because that is just bringing shame to the name of God. And if you are or have been in that place or think about in the future that you're going to be in that place where you, you know what I'm, I'm rather not going to say I'm a Christian because I'm just going through this feast after feast after feast of sinning with, with the world as if I'm not a Christian may there be some level of conviction that drives you away from that and that you are reminded of the kindness of God that should bring you to repentance that should bring you in communion with your local church. That should bring you under submission to the word of God in the context of the local church. So that the name of God 
will not be blasphemed. And in doing so, that our assurance would indeed be true security in Christ. For all those who believe. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we know that you are a good and gracious God. And that our right standing with you is not by works, but rather by faith. Faith in him who died for our sins. Him who died for the ungodly. Him who heals the sick. Him who raises the dead. May we put our trust in that Jesus this very day. So that by the result of our being born again with a new mind, with a new heart, with new desires, with new priorities. That our life will then honor God in obedience and in doing so will bring assurance of eternal life. We pray and ask these things by the power of the Holy Spirit and in Jesus' name. Amen.